0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: So you match with someone on a dating app. There's a little buzz. Who knows what's waiting for you? Is it the love of your life, an exciting hookup? Or maybe it's a heap of harassment and abuse. Hey, it's Dave Mark Hazy with you for the Hack Podcast. Soon we're getting into some research that's found almost three quarters of dating app users have experienced online sexual violence. It's actually so common that some of you probably don't even clock that it's happened. Also coming up, the government's announced a plan to stop any more extinctions. But is it too late? We're going to ask the Environment Minister... First, though.
2: There doesn't appear to be much of a space for me in politics. In politics, there's almost a deliberate stalling of diversity on
3: Triple J.
1: We know the Liberal Party is struggling with a woman problem. So many women voted against the coalition at the last election. But it turns out young women aren't just over the Liberals. They're disillusioned with politics across the board. And maybe it's not a huge surprise because we've talked a bit this year about young Australians generally being pretty over the state of politics. But young women here are significantly more likely to be turned off politics than young women overseas, even in some countries where women have fewer rights. Does this hit with you? I'm wondering how you feel about politicians. Do you trust them? Let me know, 0439-757-55. 555. 1st to find out a bit more about these new findings, here's Claudia Long.
0: What's your first memory of politics? Maybe
4: it's this. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Or this. That's how we slow the spread of this virus and that's how we save lives.
0: Or maybe it's this. Because
5: if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror.
0: Okay, probably without the six little music bed in there, but you know what I mean. That's former Prime Minister Julie Gillard calling out all the sexism she faced in politics, and, oh, my God, there was a lot of it. And even though things have changed, politics still isn't a particularly chill place to be a woman or gender diverse. And a bit unsurprisingly, that's feeding into how heaps of us engage with politics. New research from Plan International backs this up, by the way, showing that Australian girls and young women in particular are really disillusioned with the state of things. Plan surveyed 29,000 women and girls around the world, including 1,000 of us here in Australia. 60% of Australian respondents don't think politicians are acting in our best interests, significantly higher than the 43% global average. And it's not the only data that shows this, by the way. Triple J's What's Up In Your World survey found that all genders are pretty unimpressed with politics. Just 2% of people said they thought politicians are acting in the best interests of young people. Yikes. And we're more stressed out by the decisions politicians are making, with 53% of Australian women who plan surveyed saying they're worried, compared with 43% globally. (coughs) There's no denying politics is a sausage fest, even as the most diverse federal parliament we've ever had sits here in Canberra. It just doesn't reflect the community yet, with around 38% of our politicians being women. And 23-year-old Arimadei Ayarinde is... There doesn't appear to be much of a space for me in politics.
2: There's a space for me in youth movements, grassroots activism and collective action. But I found that um, in politics, those formal processes, there's almost um, a deliberate stalling of diversity. Young women, especially in Australia, feel extremely disenfranchised with our political system.
0: And she says the levels of distrust and dissatisfaction with politics are pretty unsettling.
2: We're comparing against girls and young women who live in repressive countries some of the most volatile civic situations and still Australia trail behind.
0: Remember how we were talking about the shit treatment Julia Gillard copped? Yeah, Plan Australia CEO Suzanne Legina says girls and young women are taking note of that and of how women who have made it into positions of power are treated, and it's turning a lot of people off. It is those kinds of events that add up over and over and over again that are sending a pretty clear message that you know if you want to be involved in political life, you have to be able to withstand quite high levels of abuse, of scrutiny, of um, criticism, of your physical appearance. So how do we fix this? Sadly, booting all the dinosaurs out of parliament is not an option. Ugh, democracy, rude. Both Arimide and Suzanne say a good place to start is having a parliament that actually reflects the community it's serving. We did a separate survey following the May 2022
5: federal election in Australia, which was one of the most diverse and representative parliaments. And 42% of young Australian women and gender diverse people aged 18 to 21 said that the diversity itself
6: made them more likely to consider a career in politics.
0: It's no secret young Australians are politically engaged. We know this. Arimide says it's time Time for the parliament to step up to the plate and genuinely get more young women from all walks of life in the door.
2: Young women were political. Um, we're not silent. We haven't been silent. We've been carving a space for ourselves, again, in the on the peripheries of politics because politics just hasn't created an allowed space for us.
1: Hack on Triple Jack, Claudia Longman. We're going to be diving more into this issue in the months ahead. Someone says, I hate politicians. Same respect for them as I do for used car salesmen. Okay, it's a bit rough. Well, hey, it's time to talk to a politician now.
4: Hack, not only attempting to stop new extinctions, it's also trying to put a lot of our species that are currently threatened with extinction on the path to recovery. On
1: Triple J. Right now, almost 2,000 Australian plants and animals are at risk of extinction. More than 100 have already gone extinct over the past couple of hundred years, and experts have warned that more could go over the next few decades. But today the government's announced a plan to try to stop extinctions altogether. They want to protect 30% of all land in Australia for conservation, bringing us into line with other countries. But will it work? Well, With us now is Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek. Minister, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Great to be with you. No new extinctions in Australia. I mean, it sounds good, but Australia has one of the worst extinction rates of any country in the world. Is this actually achievable?
3: Well, it, it, it's tough. Uh, and particularly after the Black Summer bushfires, we had drought before that, we've got floods after. Uh, we're you know, facing um, climate change uh, effects across our landscape, um, human-induced uh, effects, uh, yeah, it's a tough thing to do. But I think unless we set a high ambition, um, you know, we're we're at a real risk of losing the plants and animals and places that we care about. So we've got to be more ambitious. And I think the thing about this plan that sets it apart is that it, it's more ambitious than previous plans to deal with certain species lost. It's more focused. So we're really focusing on 110 Um, priority species and 20 priority places because they're the species and the places that give you the biggest biodiversity benefit Uh, and we're also um, getting some really measurable targets in there you mentioned protecting 30 percent of our land and 30 percent of our oceans by 2030 well we've signed up to that global target that translates to 50 million extra hectares of land managed for conservation between now and 2030 so we've really got a put some of these measurable um, achievements in there as well.
1: I want to ask about that because we've got more than 50 countries that have already made this pledge to protect 30% of their land and water by the end of the decade. Are we going hard enough? Like, shouldn't our target be more ambitious?
3: Well, I think it's a really good start. And, in fact, we we already have more than 30% of our oceans under... Uh, conservation management. Um, What we need to do is make sure that we're looking at representative areas of our ocean and that we don't kind of rest on our laurels. You're saying, do we need to be more ambitious? I think it's always great. To set the next target and the next target. I mean, the
1: reason, um, I say, it, the, sorry, yeah. the reason I say that is that you yourself have called us the mammal extinction capital of the world. So I just feel if we're, you know, the most at risk of these extinctions, and we had earlier this year in the state of the environment report, we had experts saying, oh, we can expect more extinctions in the next few decades. Shouldn't we have a more ambitious target than the rest of the world?
3: well i think the the global target's pretty ambitious in itself and look, i'm not going to i'm not going to tell you that we shouldn't try and do better we should always be trying to do better but setting a target of 30% of oceans and 30% of land by 2030. That's a really important next step on our conservation journey. And that's not the only thing we're doing, of course. We're reforming our environmental laws to give stronger protections to the environment as well as faster decisions to businesses that are you know, proposing new housing or a new wind farm or whatever it is. Uh, and just today I've been talking this afternoon with um, conservation groups and... Um, investors about setting up a, a nature market so that we can see more private sector investment flowing into verifiable benefits for nature things that you can uh, track over time and see are actually providing an environmental benefit much as our carbon market is is providing a, a, a way for business to reduce their um, carbon emissions so, so the- so yeah, the, it's not one thing we need to do. It's a whole range of things we need to do.
1: So the government's saying it wants to protect an extra 50 million hectares of land. Where's the land going to be? What areas?
3: Well, uh, what we want is a really broad cross-section of the landscape. So that means some of it will be rainforest, some of it will be desert, some of it will be mountains, some of it will be tableland, some of it will be, you know, you need a, a really broad section because... Um different plants and animals live in different environments across Australia. So we need a representative uh, range of landscapes. But we have focused on 20 priority areas because we know that they're areas that already have um, enormous biodiversity value. And if we can really kind of upgrade the protection around these 20 priority places, they have uh, really exponential value for biodiversity preservation. So we're looking at um, landscapes as diverse as, say, Christmas Island up in the northwest to Bruni Island in the southern part of Tasmania to Rain Island up in the the northeast uh, off the top of um, Queensland, and then on the on the mainland, looking at every everything from Kakadu National Park to the Blue Mountains and the Southern Alps or the um, Fitz Stirling's in Western Australia. Like the the whole objective of having these really broadly spaced areas is that each one of them has a unique set of plants and animals, a unique landscape that we need to preserve for future generations. And this is where we get the biggest. A bang for the effort that we're putting in.
1: You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with the Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek. Minister, we've got some messages coming through. Someone says 2030 is not good enough. How many more will we lose before that? Somebody else says no new mines. And I mean, I guess that's going to be a question a lot of people are thinking about. What about stopping new mine and gas developments? And isn't that one of the best ways to protect threatened species? Mm.
3: Um, just on the first thing, 2030 is not good enough. Nobody's suggesting that we allow um, species to become extinct till 2030. 2030 is the target for having 30% of our land and 30% of our oceans protected. And actually finding another 50 million hectares between now and 2030 is pretty ambitious. And we're gonna have to work with, um, for example, uh, First Nations people who uh, have really successfully managed indigenous protected areas, for example, to expand those indigenous protected areas. We need to make sure that, um, you know, we've got those really broad, diverse uh, examples of our landscape as part of our national estate.
1: Sure. And what about the the mine and gas developments?
3: Yeah, well, um, we do need to make sure that when we have new development, it's done in an environmentally sustainable way. And that's why we've promised to update our environmental protection laws. You mentioned the state of the environment report earlier. We had another really important report two years ago, which was from Professor Graham Samuel looking at our environmental laws. He uh, he determined that they're not fit for purpose. We're, we're degrading our environment and business is getting slow and complex decision-making. So we need to update our laws so that we get faster decisions for business and stronger environmental protections. And that's exactly what we're doing at the moment.
1: Well, I'm, I'm just wondering if the mining areas themselves might be areas that need to be protected because if we look at the New South Wales Hunter Valley for instance there are several threatened species there's the Hunter Valley Weeping Mile woodland it's critically endangered there's the Walkworth Sands woodland a new species of lizard was discovered on a mine site there are areas like the hunter that have faced significant disturbance over the past few decades going to be a big priority for protection.
3: Well, yeah, we, but I think it's a bit hard to narrow it down just to the Hunter Valley. I mean, we've got uh, we've got mining right across Australia and each one of those proposed new mines will have to be assessed against our environmental laws. I recently said that I was inclined not to allow a new coal mine in Queensland to go ahead because it was less than 10 kilometres from the Great Barrier Reef. Um, we, we'll be making decisions on a case-by-case basis assessed against our environmental laws. And as I said, we're going to be strengthening those environmental laws next
1: year. Minister, just quickly on another issue. Earlier, we just heard about some new research from Plan International that shows young women and girls are a lot more disillusioned with politics than women and girls overseas, like much more than the global average. What's the government going to do to turn this around?
3: Well, I'm, I'm really not surprised that people are disillusioned, and uh, you know, nine years, you know, nine years of Tony Abbott and you know Malcolm Turnbull, Scott Morrison. We're coming off the back of that. I think there's two things that the new government has to do to keep faith with young women and with voters more generally. The first is better reflect Australia, and for the first time in history, the Labor Party is more than half female. The Parliamentary Labor Party is 52% female. So that's a good start. Um, It does need more than gender diversity. It needs diversity in age, ethnic background, life experience, family makeup, all of that uh, needs to be better represented in our parliament. Um, The second thing we need to do, as well as better reflecting modern Australia, we actually need to do what we said we'd do. That just means keeping our promises. I think people are very, very tired of uh, parliaments, you know, proclaiming this or proclaiming that and then the the lived reality falls well short of that we need to keep our promises
1: i think a lot of people would agree with that let's hope the pledges as well this pledge to stop extinctions people will be hoping that that will be able to be fulfilled environment minister
3: can i I just say one other thing about this you know it it is really important that government takes a a strong stand here it's important that business does its bit it's important that scientists and conservationists do too but ordinary people can play a role in this by getting involved in local land care groups, by donating to environmental charities, by doing things as simple as keeping their cats locked up. Don't let your cat outside. <laughs> you know, they're, they're killers. So everyone can do their bit.
1: All right. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek, thanks so much for joining us on Hack.
3: It's a pleasure. Thank
1: you. We've got some messages coming through on this one. Someone says more attention needs to be on Australia's unique and threatened freshwater fish species. Another person says, can we have a clause that still allows the extinction of dinosaurs in Canberra?
6: Hack. We were taking afternoons or a day off at our job to go for a meeting with the president, so it was crazy.
1: On Triple Jack. So we just heard from a politician who comes up with our environment policies, big job. But what if it wasn't the politicians that made the big decisions, but it was you? It seems pretty wild, but France has actually done this. They chose more than 100 random citizens and got them to develop the French climate policy. And maybe you're thinking, what the hell? How could random people without expertise be responsible for something so important? Well, there's a bit more to it. The latest episode of our podcast, Who's Going to Save Us, goes deep on this story. Here's Joe Lauder with more.
6: Amadine Rojman was 27 and had left Paris for a holiday in 2019 when she got a text message. Actually, I, I have kept the text message. I look at it sometimes to remember that moment. So, bonjour, votre numéro de téléphone a été tiré au son. The message was asking if she was interested in taking part in the biggest democratic experiment in France in years. The Citizens' Assembly on Climate Change. She said yes. Répondez oui ou non. The Citizens' Assembly is basically where regular people are chosen to come together and are involved in decision making. In France, this one would involve 150 everyday people who were representative of the French population, and they'd be looking at climate policy. At the time, the French President Emmanuel Macron had been in political trouble because of the Gilets Jaunes or the yellow vests movement. He kicked off around a policy similar to a carbon tax, and in response, he promised to consult more and he announced the Citizens Convention for the Climate. And crucially, Macron promised to introduce all their policies sans filtre or unfiltered. But not everyone thought giving everyday people control over climate policy was a smart idea.
4: My first reaction was that what what the hell is this?
6: Louis gautin is an environmental economist at the International Centre for Researching Environment and Development, or CRED for short.
4: Well, there are people like me working on designing fair and effective policies, and the government is going to pick randomly 150 people and ask them to do just what we've been doing for over 10 years. So, so I didn't see the point.
6: He ended up signing up to be an official observer and has written a research paper on the whole climate assembly.
4: I was soon very uh, passionate about it.
6: The way the convention worked was this. It ran over seven three-day weekends. The first was a crash course in climate science and where we're at. Gitan says this was eye-opening for a lot of citizens.
4: Some claim that they, they came as climato as sceptics and after these lectures they completely changed their mind.
6: Then the citizens broke up into working groups that focused on one aspect of French society that needed to decarbonise. Then they debated, they quizzed experts, went deep into the weeds and developed policies to respond to climate change. Amadine's group focused on consumption. This measure I was really attached to was to actually stop advertising on the products that had a bad uh, carbon impact. It ran over nine months and the Assembly came up with 149 proposals to hand over to the French President Emmanuel Macron. You've not seen the, the complete report. It's, a, it's on the internet, but when you see it, I mean physically. It looks like a Bible, really. Remember, he promised to introduce these policies unfiltered. And the policies were really bold. The group wanted to ban flights for trips under four hours, to reduce speed limits, making ecocide or causing environmental destruction a crime, banning ads for fossil fuel products like cars, and paying for it all with a tax on major corporations. Then Macron came out and said he had three jokers, so he could strike out three of their policies.
1: By effectively transmitting all of your proposals, with the exception of three jokers, which I told you about in January.
6: In the end, Gatane says, the rest of the measures went through the French parliament, but they got tinkered with and some of them got watered down.
4: It makes even more transparent the gap between the people's expectations and what the political governments are able to do.
6: Despite that, Armandine says the Climate Assembly built consensus for climate policies in France. It's really important first to give you the opportunity to connect with the society of your country and feel that you are connected and you want the same Good. and the same interest, and that is so precious today.
2: I think what's beautiful about the French assembly
5: is that we saw ordinary people from bus drivers to students, to nurses, to refugees, contributing to policymaking in an intelligent and informed manner.
6: Nicole Corrado is a professor of political sociology at the University of Canberra and is a big advocate of deliberative democracy, which is what you call processes like citizens' assemblies. And actually, Australia does this a lot, but it's just not so common at the national level. She thinks we should have more of these assemblies, like the French climate one.
5: I think it's worth it. It's worth it in the sense that it demonstrated a proof of concept that you can trust ordinary citizens to come up with intelligent climate policies, policies that are even more progressive than what parliaments can come up with. Hack! Triple J.
1: Joe Lauder there, and we're getting some messages through from some people. Steph in Gembrook says Yarra Valley Water in Victoria uses a citizen jury to inform the development of their strategies and pricing submission to government. It's not as huge, but a great example of how it can be done locally. Very cool to see that it is happening here. And if you want to hear more about this, about how it all works, you can go listen to the latest step of Who's Going to Save Us. You can find it on the Triple J app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hack.
0: There are alarming figures showing almost three quarters of people on dating apps in Australia have been subjected to harassment and abuse online. On Triple
3: J.
1: You know, if you're using dating apps, you'll know you're often left pretty disappointed with the way people behave. Sure, people can be rude and offensive, but it's also a lot darker. Some new research shows almost three-quarters of dating app users have been subjected to online sexual violence. It's become so normalised that many users don't even recognise it for what it is. Maybe that's you. Are you done with the apps because of the abuse you've copped in the past? I want to know. 0439757555. Let's get into this a bit more with an expert. Professor Kath Albury is a sexuality and digital cultures expert at Swinburne University, and she's with us now. G'day, Kath. Thanks for joining us. Hey, on how you going? Yeah, good, thank you. You've done a heap of research into safety and risk on dating apps over the years, and there are probably people listening who don't even know that they're being harassed or abused. What kinds of things are we talking about here?
5: Uh, Look, our research looked at the elements that make people feel safer or less safe when they're using apps, Um, and people didn't always explicitly talk about harassment, but there were certainly lots of people who had received messages um, or um, could tell that someone had looked at their profile when they thought a filter had been set so that that kind of person wouldn't be able to match with them or see them. So, for example, um, women who had set their filter to explicitly say they only wanted to match with other women were getting messages from men on apps and that certainly could be experienced as harassment in some cases. Um, And people also experienced um, inappropriate, um, very direct sexual comments when they, you know, as the opener to a conversation when they certainly didn't feel like they were inviting it or wanting it or um, conversations that very quickly turned abusive when they were quite politely saying, no, thank you, not interested. It would very quickly flip from you're hot to, I wouldn't do you anyway, you expletive, expletive, expletive. So kind of very aggressive reactions to rejection. That wasn't everyone in our study. It it was a qualitative study where a lot of people had very good experiences or positive experiences of apps, but often, yeah, there, there were experiences of pushy or aggressive behaviour on apps.
1: You know, one of the big findings of this study is queer people are experiencing a lot more abuse than heterosexual users. Why is that? Like, are there LGBTQI apps? You know, is there a different culture as opposed to other apps?
5: Uh, look, it's it's quite um, a tricky thing to answer straight up because um, there are plenty of non-heterosexual people on quote-unquote mainstream apps like Tinder. So it's, um, you know, and, and people go where they think the biggest population will be. So if you're in a r- rural or regional area, there might be a very small population on a queer specific app and a much bigger population on something like Tinder or Bumble. So that's where you go. Um, certainly, yeah, lesbian and bisexual women experience um, a report in, in almost every study report being um, approached by men, either catfishing with fake profiles of women, or um, often there's unwelcome approaches from couples um, who are seeking a threesome um, and... Uh, people are often quite offended by that, and um, you know, they, if they if they're open to it, that's great, good, you know, and they might be on an app that's specifically for that. But on a on on a more mainstream app like Tinder, that's that's often very unwelcome, and it, and it's often seen as a, a kind of. Um, violating experience, um, particularly if someone is on there um, for a very specific
1: purpose. We know about abuse on dating apps. Like we've heard a lot about it over the years. So Hack's even done an investigation, a big four corners, um, look into Tinder, for example. But, you know, it doesn't feel like there's a lot happening. Are the apps doing enough to deal with this? Um.
5: Globally, there are lots of moves to improve safety on apps, but that can actually um, work against people from sexual minorities or or in other kinds of minorities. So, for example, um, very strong real name policies or gender verification policies can be quite discriminatory towards trans and gender diverse people um, because the machine learning and, and AI Processes right now for um, identifying someone's gender by their voice or their photo are not very um, finely tuned, so they can be quite discriminatory against some people. And there's also cases where people have very good reason for hiding their identity on apps, for example, if they've been stopped in the past um, or they're a person who's not out um, as queer in a small rural or regional community, they might not want to have a face pick on the app. And for those people, some kinds of identity verification processes can make them feel less safe. Um, but the main thing that people report in all studies around dating app safety is they're really concerned about the transparency of what happens when they do report. Unwanted behaviour to an app, whether that's um, rudeness from another app user or whether it's actually quite serious where they've met that person and the person um, has either assaulted them or has tried to assault them has right. been has been very um, aggressive. Um, often people choose not to report, and we know that there's lots of reasons why people not choose not to um, report sexual violence in general, but yeah. often people have not said they haven't reported to the app because they have no sense of transparency about what will happen if they report. They feel like... We're going to um,
1: have to leave it there, Professor Kath yeah, sure, Albury sure. from Swinburne <laughs> Uni, but some really, really great information. We appreciate you coming on Hack. Hack on Triple Jack. Big thanks again to all of our guests and everyone who contributed to the podcast today. That's all we've got time for. I'll catch you next time.